I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have, a, uh, have the pew back Bible in front of you, that's on page 965, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll begin reading at verse 4 through verse 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's good to see you this morning. If you'll indulge me for just one moment, I'd like to ask for you to pray for something specific. Last uh, weekend, several of us went to Mexico to visit with our missionaries that we work with in Mexico. And the whole goal of the weekend was to encourage those men and the churches they work with to to re-emphasize the need for godly spiritual leadership. We talked especially about elders and what it means to appoint and install elders. We also talked at length about how, for example, in Titus chapter one, verse five, Paul had left Titus in Crete so that he might set in order the things that were lacking in the church and appoint elders in every church. And the challenge of the weekend that we left our missionaries with was this. If nothing else, start praying, start praying personally and congregationally, publicly, for elders, because this is God's will for the church. This is what he wants the church to be like. And uh, it was a great weekend, had a great time. I'll tell you this, you haven't lived until you've been crammed into the backseat of a 15 passenger van with David Dunn and Ray Whitman. But it was great. We, every time we went over a bump, you guys know David Dunn as a man of few words, but he made noises that I don't think I've ever heard a human being make before. <laughs> It was not the most comfortable thing, but it was a blessing to be on the trip. We really enjoyed it and, and really have great respect for the work that our men in Mexico are doing. Uh, we were at the Monterey School of Preaching at the Sierra Ventana congregation, and uh, they have on the back of, they have a school of preaching there, as I've just mentioned. On the back of their auditorium wall, they have a, a painting of the nation of Mexico, and every single one of their graduates' names is on that, on that painting. And so every time they graduate a new class, they add names. There are over 300 men that they have graduated that are preaching the gospel full-time in Mexico and in a few other places, a few other countries as well. And we thank God for the work that they're doing and continue to do. Be praying for that privately, especially in your own private prayers. Be praying for the churches in Mexico, that they'll have the kind of leadership that God desires. It takes time. It takes time to build up the kind of qualifications in men that we read about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But I would really appreciate it if you'd be praying for those things. This morning, we're going to begin a sermon series that will last through the month of April. And the sermon series is entitled Core Curriculum. You may be educated, you may be highly educated, but I'm going to say something that you need to think about. Nobody's education is complete unless we know and understand God's Word. Our education is really not finished until we know the book of books, the only book that God ever wrote, the Bible. And we're going to begin this morning with this series talking about the New Testament especially. 
What I'm going to do this morning is talk about every book, there are 27 of them in the New Testament, what they're about, give you kind of a key word or a key phrase and some passages to think about because the message of the Bible is consistent from start to finish, Old and New Testament, the Bible is about three things. It's about God's glory, it's about man's salvation, and most of all, it's about Jesus Christ. The Bible is about those three things. It's about God who is glorious. We sang this morning, you are beautiful beyond description. We, we believe that about God. He is marvelous and remarkable and majestic. He is one to be glorified. And the Bible is about man's salvation. People are not right with God. And the Bible tells us how God has worked in history to provide a way for men to be saved. And third, the Bible is about Jesus Christ and the work that he came to do. So whether you're reading Genesis or Revelation or any of the books in between, all of the books of the Bible have to do with God's glory, man's salvation, and Jesus Christ in some way. But there are 66 individual books within this book, and every one of them has a theme and a purpose and a message that it's trying to communicate to you. And we've got a lot of newer Christians among us here at Katy, and we're so thankful that you're here, and we're so thankful that you've obeyed the gospel. One of the reasons why we're involving ourselves in this series is to help all of us to remind ourselves to become more familiar with what the Bible has to say to us. So with that in mind, I don't have a clicker this morning. There is no PowerPoint besides what you see on the screen behind me. That's all you get. Because I was thinking about this all week long and I talked to KJ and Jordan about it a little bit and what do you think? And, I think there's too much going on on the screen sometimes and you sometimes miss some of the things that are being said. So with that in mind, here's my suggestion for you. One of two things. I know a lot of you have a paper copy of the Bible like this one. Why don't you just do this this morning? Turn your Bibles to Matthew right now if you would and what you can do as I talk about Matthew in a moment is just write down one or two words that summarize Matthew and then just maybe jot down a scripture or two that I mentioned. And then we're going to turn to Mark and do the same thing. So if you've got your paper copy of the Bible, you can do that. A lot of you have electronic copies. I know that. What you can do, there are handouts that you might have picked up in the foyer. You can just do the same thing on that sheet of paper. Or maybe you just want to do that and then you want to transcribe it into your Bible later on. It'll help you to be a better student of God's Word. I'd also like to challenge you to do this. I'd like to challenge you at some time in the next two months to read the New Testament. The whole thing, yeah, the whole New Testament. Did you know that reading at 200 words per minute, which is not all that fast, you could read the entire New Testament in 14 hours? Did you know that? Reading at 200 words per minute, you could read the entire New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, in 14 or so hours. Why don't you take that as a challenge? I want to read the New Testament. I just want to know what God says. You don't have to stop and think about every question and every detail, but read it and get the gist of the message that God's trying to communicate to you. Now, with all that in mind, we're going to talk about the New Testament this morning. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Old Testament. I realize the Old Testament is longer. You know what I did? I talked to the song leader who happens to be my son. And I said, we're gonna not sing quite as many songs tonight so that we can have a little bit more time for the sermon. He said, okay, dad, that sounds great. And so that's what we're gonna do tonight. <laughs> Let's talk about the New Testament this morning. 
The New Testament, beginning with the book of Matthew, is divided into four divisions. This is on the top of your handout if you've got one of those. The four divisions go like this. The first four books, four, are gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They talk about the life of Christ. Then there is one book of history in your New Testament. That's the book of Acts. The book of Acts talks about the history of the church. How did the church begin? How did it grow? Where did it go? What kinds of challenges did it face early on? Acts deals with that. And then you've got 21 epistles, letters. From Romans to Jude, 21 epistles. Letters written from an individual to a church or an individual to a a person or sometimes an individual to a group of churches as Galatians is. And then you've got one book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. And Revelation we'll talk about toward the end of this lesson, obviously, but Revelation has to do with comfort and joy and encouragement for hurting churches. With all that in mind, 4-1-21-1, those are the divisions of the New Testament, Let's start and talk about Matthew. There's a lot you can learn about God just by doing a study like this, just by thinking about what each book of the New Testament teaches us and can help us to learn about God and about what he's done for us in history. The book of Matthew, number one. Key phrase of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is his rule in our lives. And Matthew emphasizes this in a marvelous way. Matthew uses the word kingdom 55 times in 28 chapters. Jesus talked about the kingdom from start to finish. And Jesus is the king in Matthew. Matthew begins in Matthew 2 verse 2 with some wise men who come and say, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 27, verse 36, Pilate puts an inscription above Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He's the King. And he talks all through Matthew about his kingdom. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? Of special note, when you read the book of Matthew, you should pay attention to and become very familiar with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. They are some of the most loved passages in all the Bible. And I'll tell you something, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, you can always learn something and grow by studying the Sermon on the Mount. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, it's challenging to the core. Turn to the book of Mark. Key phrase for the book of Mark, Jesus, the servant of all. Jesus, the servant of all. Mark is the shortest gospel account and it deals with Jesus as a servant. The emphasis of Mark is what Jesus did, not so much what he taught. What Jesus did, there are 19 miracles that are recorded in the book of Mark. It's about his work on earth. It's about the kind of person that Jesus is. And the key verse of Mark is Mark chapter seven, verse 37. Mark chapter seven, verse 37. Behold, he, Jesus, has done all things well. You and I try all kinds of things and we may fail, we may, we may 
you know, make a mess of things, but not Jesus. Jesus does all things well. That's the kind of Jesus that we serve. He is the servant of all. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One of Mark's favorite words, if you like reading the book of Mark, notice how many times he uses the word immediately. Straightway, if you've got the King James translation, immediately, straightway, he's excited to tell his story. He's excited to tell you about who Jesus is and about how Jesus lived and about what his priorities were. That's Mark. As a matter of fact, for new Christians, I'd recommend if you want to learn more about Jesus, you start with the book of Mark. It's fascinating. It's life-changing. Next, turn to the book of Luke. Turn to the book of Luke. Key phrase for the book of Luke, ideal man. Jesus is the ideal man. Most scholars think that, Mark, that Luke was written to a Greek audience. And the Greeks, if you know much about them, they had a conception that there was such a thing as a perfect ideal. It wasn't anything that was attainable by us, but it was something to strive toward. Luke sets forth Jesus and says, no, there is an ideal that's attainable. It's Jesus. That's who he is. And all of us are just imperfect representations of who he is, trying to be more like him. Key verse of Luke is Luke 2.52. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is the ideal man. And it's amazing as you read Luke, Luke is a doctor and he's trying to give you a chronological account of how Jesus lived. He's all about getting things in order, Luke is. And Luke especially emphasizes that Jesus, the ideal man, Jesus spent his time associating with, listen, Jesus associated with outcasts, with lepers, with sinners and tax collectors, with people that society has ostracized and forgotten. Those are the people that Jesus has a heart for. Those are the people that Jesus came to win back. Those are the people he came to set free. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we ought to ask ourselves, would Jesus have associated with me? Luke affirms that Jesus cares about those who are lost. Luke 19, verse 10, he says, my whole purpose is to seek and to save that which is lost. Interestingly, Luke records more about Jesus' relationships with women and how they loved him and supported his ministry. Luke does more of that than any other gospel account. Luke chapter eight, verses one through three, for example. Luke presents Jesus as the ideal, the perfect, the one that we're trying to be more like. And then John, turn your Bibles to the gospel of John. Key phrase, Jesus is God. That's what John is. John is a defense of the idea that Jesus is God. It begins in John chapter one, verses one through 14. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. That's how he starts the book. And then in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John gives you the reason why he wrote. He said, I've written these things, these signs that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that believing you may have life through his, his name. That's why I've written this book, John 20, 30 and 31. I think the key verse of John is John 20, verse 28. Thomas doubted whether Jesus had come back from the dead. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my, my, my fingers in the nail holes. And finally, Jesus appears to Thomas and lets him examine the evidence. You know what Thomas says? John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. 
Who is Jesus? He is God. He is fully God. And that's what John's trying to convince you of. Of note, more than half of the gospel of John deals with the last couple of days before the cross. Starting in chapter 12, all the way through chapter 19. Jesus is, is, is going to Jerusalem, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the upper room with his disciples. A huge portion of this book just deals with those few days in Jesus' life, proving to us that he is divine, he's God. Much to study in the Gospel of John. Acts, when you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, conversions, conversions. I told you a minute ago, Acts is the first book of history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts of Jesus' life. And then Acts is what happens after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it talks about conversions. How are people brought to Christ? What does it mean to become a Christian? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the key verse of the entire book. It tells you at the beginning, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, a geographical outline of the book. You will be, Jesus says, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's how Acts unfolds, Acts 1 verse 8. The, the, the gospel starts to be preached in Jerusalem and then it's scattered into Judea and Samaria and then it goes into the farthest parts of the earth because that was the great commission, take the gospel to all the world. There are nine detailed conversion accounts in the book of Acts. There are nine of them. Acts chapter two, Acts chapter eight, there's two of them. Acts chapter nine, verse 22, er, chapter 22 and 26, the conversion of Saul. Acts chapters 10 and 11, there's conversion account of Cornelius. Acts chapter 16, there's two more conversion accounts, both Lydia and the Philippian jailer. Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 18 and 19. You'll find detailed conversion accounts. In every one of those conversion accounts, you know what happens in every one of them? Faith in Jesus, repentance of sin, baptism for the remission of sin in every single case. How do I become a Christian? What must I do to be saved? Acts 16 verse 30. The book of Acts is your book to answer that question. How do people become Christians? Read the book of Acts. Do what they did and you'll be what they were. New Testament Christians and Christians only. Romans. Turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. Key word. Justification. Justification. Justification means made right. And the question that Romans answers is, how can a holy God who is completely separate from sin, how can he take somebody who's sinful like me and say, John, it's okay, you're forgiven. How can he do that and still be holy? How can he do that without contaminating himself? without becoming less than who he is. How can God save a sinner? That's the question that Romans answers. Romans 1.16, key verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, of gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans deals with the question of how we are saved, the ground of our justification. 
If you ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Acts answers that. If you're asking, how does God do it? Romans answers that. By the way, both Acts and Romans teach that baptism is how we come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. We are baptized into his death. We are raised out of baptism with him to walk in newness of life. Romans 1 through 11, those 11 chapters, those first 11, they explain the gospel. And Romans 12 through 16 give us practical implications of the gospel for how we ought to live. 1 Corinthians, next book. The book of 1 Corinthians, key phrase, church problems. Church problems. Corinth was a church like this one. It was a church full of people that loved the Lord, that believed in Jesus Christ, that had repented of their sins and been baptized, but they had some serious problems. First four chapters, they dealt with factions. People were kind of clinging to the preacher they liked. Some of them were taking each other to court. First Corinthians chapter six, they had questions about marriage and whether it was okay uh, to, you know, to divorce and to be remarried and those kinds of things. First Corinthians chapter seven, they had questions about eating meat offered to idols. First Corinthians eight, nine, and 10. They had questions in 11 through 14 about, about worship and what worship ought to look like. They had questions about even things like the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Key verse, key phrase, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I beseech you, brethren, that all of you be of the same mind and the same judgment, that you all speak the same thing. Be unified. And do you know how 1 Corinthians does that? With all these problems that were going on in the local church in Corinth, you know how Paul emphasizes unity? In almost every single case, he holds up Jesus Christ and he holds up the cross. He says, you've got to keep looking at Jesus, church. You've got to keep looking at the cross and thinking about what that means in the questions that you're asking. It makes a profound difference in how we live. Church problems. Second Corinthians. The book of Second Corinthians, key word, key phrase, ministry. Ministry. Every single one of us who is a Christian has a ministry. We have a service to render to God and to others. And 2 Corinthians, more than any other book in the New Testament, focuses on what ministry looks like. It focuses on motives. And what's happening in 2 Corinthians is Paul, an apostle, is defending his apostleship. He's proving to the church that he really is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the favorite, my favorite verse in 2 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Key verse, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. In ministry, and it doesn't matter whether you're an apostle or a preacher or an elder or whatever you are, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Our goal, our task in life, in our ministry is to lift up Jesus and to diminish ourselves. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. John chapter 3 verse 30. I'll tell you something. When you think about 2 Corinthians, ministry has to do with sacrificial giving and it has to do with maturity. And you read about both of those things. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 deals with the sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, there is not a better picture of maturity in Christ than those chapters. 2 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, and 13. You know, a lot of people in ministry count their stars. How many people did you baptize? How many people did you teach? How many people did you influence? What kind of a difference did you make? Not Paul. Paul counted his scars. How much like Jesus do I look? Ministry.
Galatians, next book. Galatians. Liberty in Christ. Liberty in Christ. Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom for which Christ Jesus has made us free. Do not be entangled again to a yoke of bondage. Christian, if you've obeyed the gospel, don't let somebody put a bunch of extra rules on you that aren't found in the New Testament. Don't let somebody preach a different gospel to you than the one that you find in the New Testament. There is only one gospel, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And if anybody preaches anything different, they, le- they must be called anathema, separated from God, accursed. There's only one gospel, and the gospel that God has given us, it brings liberty, it brings freedom. In the context of Galatians, it has to do with being free from the old law, the law of Moses. He's saying, if you're a Christian, you can't try to follow that old law and still think that that's how you're going to be saved. We're free in Christ. There's a lot to think about in the book of Galatians. Ephesians. The book of Ephesians purpose in Christ. Purpose in Christ. Ephesians deals with God's purpose and Jesus Christ and his church. Purpose in Christ. Key verse to me, Ephesians 4 verse 3. Ephesians 4 verse 3. He said in Ephesians 4 verse 3, Christians, do your best to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do your absolute best. The spirit has made peace by what Jesus did for us at the cross. And in the church, our task, our purpose is to do our best to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Interestingly, there are six chapters in Ephesians and every chapter gives us a different picture of the church. Ephesians 1, it's the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, it's the temple of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, it is the purpose of God in history. Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. In Ephesians 4, the church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians 5, it's the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians 6, it is the army of God. Every chapter of Ephesians talks about the church and what it is. We ought to think about our purpose in Christ, our purpose in the church. Ephesians helps us to do that. Philippians. Joy in Christ. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? If you've read Philippians, you know the key verse of Philippians is Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. God wants us to be people who rejoice in Jesus, who rejoice in him. That's the whole point of Philippians. And Philippians deals with some really difficult circumstances. Paul was in prison, chapter 1. Epaphras had been sick, chapter 2, and not only that, but the Philippians were going through some internal struggles in chapter 4. You know where you're going to find joy? You know why some of us miss out on joy? Because we don't seek our joy in the Lord. We seek our joy in circumstances or in opportunities or in experiences, but we don't seek our joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4 verse 13. It's about joy in the Lord. Colossians. The book of Colossians deals with sufficiency in Christ. Sufficiency in Christ. One of the key words of Colossians is filled or fulfilled. 
And the Bible talks about how we are complete in Christ. There were some people in Colossae that were going around in the church and they were saying, you know what? You guys are not really Christians. Yeah, you've done some things that Christians ought to do, but you're not really, really authentically knowledgeable about everything you ought to know. And they were calling into question some other people's faith. Colossians says, no, when you obey the gospel, you're complete in Christ. Colossians chapter two, verses nine and 10. As a matter of fact, you might just make that the key phrase or key passage, Colossians two, verses eight, nine, and 10. Paul says, don't be deceived, don't be led astray by philosophies and, and the, the, the doctrines of men. Don't be led astray by those things. Realize that you're complete in him. You're sufficient in him. And Colossians deals with the greatness of Jesus. There is not a passage in the New Testament that says more about who Jesus is than Colossians chapter one. That's worthy of study all on its own. Jesus is the creator of all things, Colossians 1.16, and he is the head of the church, Colossians 1 verse 18. How great a savior we have, we can be complete in him. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Maybe the first New Testament book written. Key phrase, second coming. Second coming. Jesus is going to come back one day and every one of the five chapters in First Thessalonians concludes with a promise about Jesus' second coming. He's going to come back. We're waiting for him. Even now, still today, we're waiting for him to return. First Thessalonians deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10 is a key passage. First Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, watch this, to wait for his son Jesus from heaven. What we're doing as Christians is we're waiting for the Lord to return. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 talks about not sorrowing as those who have no hope. When one of us passes away, when a Christian passes away, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring the souls of those who have departed with him. The dead in Christ will rise first, it says. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians, the second coming. 2 Thessalonians, judgment. Key word, Judgment. 2 Thessalonians deals with three parties that are subject to God's judgment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus Christ will return from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. God is going to judge those who refuse to obey his word, chapter 1. God is going to judge the man of sin, chapter 2. He's going to kill him with the breath of his mouth, it says. And God is going to judge even Christians who are idle and walk in the ways of the world. Second Thessalonians chapter three, God's judgment in every one of the three chapters. We live before a God who loves us, who is for us, and yet he warns us in his word, my judgment, my wrath will fall upon those who refuse to obey my will. First Timothy, first Timothy. Roles in the church, roles in the church, R-O-L-E-S, 1 Timothy, roles in the church. Key verse, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. I write these things that you may know how to conduct yourself in the church of God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 15, roles in the church. 1 Timothy deals with the difference between men's roles and women's roles. 
1 Timothy chapter 2. It deals with the role of an elder, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and it deals with the role of a deacon, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and following. 1 Timothy chapter 4 deals with the role of a minister. 1 Timothy chapter 5 deals with older women who are widows indeed. 1 Timothy chapter 6 deals with the rich and the poor in the church. Roles in the church. There's a role for all of us. There is a part for all of us to play so that God might be glorified, so that Jesus Christ might be exalted. 1 Timothy talks about those things. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, key word is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Paul's about to die, he knows it. And he writes this as his last will and testament. And he's saying to Timothy, his young protege, his young brother in the faith, Timothy, be faithful. Key verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Preach the word, be faithful, be instant, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy is challenging this young man, is challenging all of us to be faithful to the Lord. And not only that, the things that you've received from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit these to other men, faithful men, that they may be able to train others also. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Leadership training is an emphasis of God's people. Second Timothy emphasizes that. The book of Acts emphasizes that. It's something we need to give more attention and prayer to. That's why I say, pray for the churches in Mexico that they might have the kind of godly leadership that God desires them to have. Pray those things. We're looking for faithful people. Jesus is looking for faithful people. Titus. Key phrase for Titus, good works. You read Titus and you'll find good works on almost every paragraph, starting at the end of chapter one. We are a people who have been purchased by Jesus and we are to be zealous for good works. Titus chapter two, verse 14. Titus 2 verse 11 tells us that Jesus, the grace of God, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What does it mean to live as a Christian? It means that I do good. I'm all about good works, and I'm thinking about what pleases the Lord. Titus 2 talks about a lot of different age groups in the church, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. Talks about those that serve, the slaves. Talks about all of those groups and it says, maintain good works, do things that are good. This is what it looks like. Remind them in Titus chapter three to maintain good works. This is his emphasis. The church ought to be all about good works, about helping and about serving to the glory of God. Philemon, Philemon. Philemon is a one chapter book you need to think about Philemon. Let me tell you something. We live in a day when people use their authority and they basically say, I'm in charge. You do what I say. Case closed. Philemon says there's a better way to use your authority. The key word of Philemon is receive. Philemon is a story about a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon and he found Paul in a faraway place, was converted, became a Christian and Onesimus is coming back with the letter of Philemon and Paul says, Philemon, you're my brother in Christ. I could command you to receive Onesimus, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of your love. Philemon verse 9, key verse. 
I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of your love, your love for the Lord, your love for the Lord's people, your love for Onesimus. One of the things you learn in Philemon is there's more than one way to exercise authority. And you also learn this. Listen very carefully. People don't change just because you think they need to. People change because they think they need to. And Philemon appeals to the man Philemon in such a way that Philemon's going to think, I need to change for the Lord's sake. It's a master class in how to deal with people. One short, cha- one short book deals with all that. Hebrews. <clears throat> Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. A lot of you have opinions. That's fine. But that's all they are is opinions. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews, key word, key phrase, better. Better. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice, a better Savior with a better ministry, a better covenant, better promises. Everything about being a Christian is better. And that's what Hebrews does. It talks about how Jesus is better than the angels, chapter one, how he's better than Moses and the others, uh, other men of faith throughout the history, Hebrews chapters uh, three and following. It talks about he's a better high priest than the Levites. He's a, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It talks about how he's brought in a better covenant. It's not types and, 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 and you know, physical things like the temple and the tabernacle. Jesus has brought in the true meaning, the fulfillment of all those things. He's better in every way. And it's not politically correct to say this, but Christianity, according to Hebrews, is a better way of serving God, a better religion than any other. It's not politically correct, but that's the word. That's, that's what the Bible's telling us. Because this is how God has ordained to save man. This is what he's done in history. And Hebrews is all about defending that idea. There's nothing else you could look to that you're going to find the same things you find in Christianity. Forgiveness, a relationship with God, your sins and your iniquities remembered no more. You're not going to find that anywhere else except for New Testament Christianity. James, the book of James, practical Christianity, practical Christianity. If you're a new Christian, If you've just started this walk, read Mark and read James. You hear me? Read those two books, Mark and James. Here's what James does. James talks about what it means to live as a Christian in the world right now. James James 1 verse 22, key verse. James 1 verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You as a Christian can listen to a lot of sermons and a lot of Bible classes. You need to not just listen, you need to do it. You need to put it into practice in your life. That's what James is challenging you to do. It has to do with things like showing prejudice and partiality toward other people. Don't do that, James chapter two. It has to do with things like how you control your tongue, watching what you say, James chapter three. It has to do with things like worldliness, James chapter four, and prayer, James chapter five. It's about being a practical Christian. James is where the rubber meets the road. Immensely practical book, highly recommended for all of us, especially if you're a new Christian. First Peter, the book of first Peter, key verse, or key phrase, suffering. First Peter, suffering. Suffering as a Christian. All of us are going to do it. We're going to hurt. We're going to ache. We're going to have a hard time. And 1 Peter is about hope in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. 
we need to realize 1 Peter 4.16 is challenging us that when we suffer, we ought to lift our eyes heavenward and we ought to think about spiritual things. Peter says, you Christians, you make sure you're being holy. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And Peter also reminds us, he's the one that especially reminds us in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we are strangers and pilgrims in the world. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. You're going to suffer some, but we're on a journey. We're going somewhere else. That's the point. Second Peter. Second Peter, key word, knowledge. Knowledge. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter gives us the Christian virtues, the Christian graces in Second Peter chapter 1. And at the end of those in verse 8, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing him. That's what life is all about, knowing Jesus. And 2 Peter deals with that. Don't let a false teacher lead you astray. Don't let them deceive you, 2 Peter chapter 2. Don't let them cause you to doubt that what you're reading in this book is true. Know Jesus. Know Jesus' word. That's the challenge. 1 John. 1 John. Boy, this is a hard one. How do you summarize 1 John? I'm going to say love. Love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he who does not love does not know God because God is love. John deals with three things, righteousness, love, and belief in every chapter, almost every verse, being right with God, loving God, and especially in John, loving your brother, and then believing John deals with those things over and over and over in the book of 1 John. But the emphasis, the profound emphasis is on love. You know, John was one of the two apostles that Jesus called the sons of thunder. He wanted once, once upon a time to call down fire on his enemies. And now as an aged man, John's writing 1 John and he's saying, you know, we really need to love one another. Truth matters. Truth is vital. Truth is important. But more than anything, we need to love one another. Second John. Truth and love. They are not mutually exclusive. Truth and love. Second John. Sometimes our commitment to truth means that the way we treat people in their perception is unloving. Second John verse 9. Whoever goes on does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Don't greet them. Don't bid them Godspeed. John goes on to say. It's going to look strange to them. It's going to feel strange. But if you really love them, if you love truth and if you care for their soul, you're not going to encourage or support or uphold or celebrate things that are sinful, things that are false, things that are wrong. You're not going to do those things. Second John, a short book, deals with a lot, a heavy topic. Third John, imitate. That's the key word, imitate. Third John verse 11, there are three individuals in third John, Gaius and Demetrius and Diotrephes. Diotrephes thinks a lot of himself. Diotrephes is an authoritarian leader and he's not interested in truth. He's just interested in being in control. Don't imitate what's evil. You imitate what is good. You imitate the things and the people around you that are doing what's right. That's third John. Jude, key word of Jude contend. Contend. Contend means fight. You hear me? It means fight. 
You better fight in a godly way. You better fight in a way that represents Jesus well, but you got to fight sometimes. Jude verse three, I'm writing to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There were some things that Jude had heard about his brethren. They were being inundated with false teachers. And he said, somebody has got to stand up with a backbone and say some things about this. But when you fight, when you contend, you need to number one, realize what false teachers are like. That's what most of Jude deals with. And number two, you need to realize that not all problems are created equal. Jude verse 23, or 22 and 23, talks about on some, make a distinction, show mercy. On others, snatch them out of the fire, hitting even the garments that are defiled. Be careful how you deal with people, especially when you're contending for what's right. And finally, the book of Revelation. Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. We win. That's Revelation. Revelation is not really all that much about the end of the world. There are some things in there that are. But most of Revelation is for the church that is hurting. And Revelation is making this promise. If you will be faithful until death, I, Jesus, will give you a crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10, key verse. Revelation 2, 10, be faithful till death, I'll give you a crown of life. That's what I want from you, church. I want you to be faithful to me. And all the visions of Revelation, the vast majority of them have to do with encouraging the church to see a great God who is mightier than any scary creature that the devil might wrestle up to try to contend with us. We have victory in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have hope in him, you have the promise of eternal life in him, and all you gotta do is hang on. All you gotta do is trust him and obey his will. That's it, that's Revelation. A magnificent book to study from that perspective. Why do this? I do this because it's helpful to see the big picture. I like to see from 30,000 feet sometime before I zoom in on one particular. I want to challenge you, if you didn't hear me at the beginning, read the New Testament in the next couple of months. It takes you 14 hours. You can find 14 hours in the next couple of months, can't you? Read the New Testament. Hear God speaking to you through this book, through these words. That's what he wants from all of us. Your education is incomplete until and unless you've been mastered by this book. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, you know what, there's a lot in that New Testament and I want to know more. We would love to study with you. We'd love to sit down and just open up the book and give you Bible answers to your questions. Not our answers, the Bible's. Maybe you've been studying and you realize, you know, what those people did in the book of Acts when they repented and were baptized, I want to do that because I want to be a Christian. There's no better time than the present, no better place than right here. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation this morning, won't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.